So tonight we're looking at, how, there we go, there we go, tonight we're going to look at heresies, and you're like, why on earth are we going to look at heresies? Well, number one, they're cool, <laughs> they, they really are, you'll probably hear some tonight that you're like, that makes absolutely no sense, how on earth did they come up with that, and hopefully that'll at least get you your brain's going and get you on to some further study. I'm also going to say this. As cool as heresies are, they're actually very boring. Because the more you study heresy and the more you read God's word, the more you realize how actually exciting God's word is. It is amazing that the God who created this universe out of nothing said, I've got a creation that is good and very good, and then I have the need to redeem this creation because of their own will. They have fallen. And now I'm going to send my son, who is God in the flesh, to redeem them and to bring that communion back together. That is exciting. Heresies are boring and repetitive. And you're, as we go through them tonight, you'll be like, this sounds just like this other one. And you're not far off. All right? So let's begin. All right? One of the stalwarts of the early church was Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyon. Uh, he wrote a book called Against Heresies. And it seems like every church father wrote a book called Against Heresies. Because that's just what you call them. Uh, right? But in his preface to book one, he writes, Error... Indeed, is never set forth in its naked deformity, lest, being thus exposed, it should at once be detected, but is craftily decked out in an attractive dress, so as by its outward form to make it appear to the inexperienced, ridiculous as that expression may seem, more true than the truth itself. So what does a heresy do? It puts on a fancy dress and it makes itself look pretty so your eyes are drawn towards it as opposed to truth. That's what heresy is. And we'll get down later to a, another definition that Irenaeus has in that same book against heresies in that same, uh, in chapter 8. But uh, tonight we're just going to look at snapshots of heresies in the early church. We're not going to do anything in depth. We're just going to hopefully do a very quick study. Uh, it is my goal that eventually maybe one of these days we can start looking at these heresies one at a time and go in depth and we can actually look at the the types of writings that were going back and forth in them. Uh, but uh, we need to start out with, what is a heresy? Somebody give me a definition of what a heresy is, or what heresy is. What is heresy? Just start throwing out ideas. You don't have to be right. All right. Error in the divinity of Christ and what? And his humanity. Now by that, do you mean error in our understanding of his divinity and humanity? Okay. Very good.
promoted by a leader. We'll just, right, okay. Is it always just one leader? Never. Angry decoration from jealous people. I like that one. If you need me to uh, interpret my handwriting tonight, please do. That's about as pretty as it gets. (laughs) (laughs) Teaching that contradicts the word of God. These are all very good. Nope. If I can spell tonight. Fun fact, the word contradicts in Latin literally means against writing or against words. Contra against dictation to write. Interesting, huh? That's your word lesson, your flexography for the day. Right? Here's a, all of those definitions are true. I'm going to try to wrap them up all in one thought, okay? Heresy and heretics, for that matter, is hostility or those that are hostile to the convictions and teachings of the true church by those who wish to insidiously assimilate themselves to Christian orthodoxy. Right? On heresy and heretics, Irenaeus wrote, Such then is their system, which neither the prophets announced, nor the Lord taught, nor the apostles delivered, but of which they boast that beyond all others they have a perfect knowledge. In this one, they're talking mainly about Gnostics, but it seems, stands true for all others. They gather their views from other sources than the scriptures, and to use a common proverb, they strive to weave ropes out of sand. That's a good one. They try to weave ropes out of sand while they endeavor to adapt with an air of probability to their own peculiar, peculiar assertions, the parables of the Lord, the sayings of the prophets, in order that their scheme may not seem altogether without support. In doing so, however, they disregard the truth and the connection of the scriptures and they destroy the truth. Irenaeus on Against the Heresies, Book 1, Chapter 8, Paragraph 1. All right, that's a pretty good one. Right? If you've never read Irenaeus, please do so. Uh, take your time doing that, though, because it it's about this thick. He's got another one against Marcion, and it's about this thick. So, all right, there are two categories of, his, of uh, heresies. Right? The first one is, Christological. What do I mean by Christological? It's against Christ. All right. The second one is ecclesiological. What do I mean by that? It's against the church. Okay. So we're going to look at the way they are Christological tonight and the way they they are ecclesiological. And we're going to look at some heresies on that. But I want to break those down just for a second. All right. Ecclesiological or a Christological is everything dealing with who Christ is. As Mr. Morris correctly pointed out, 
It has to do with his divinity, and it has to do with his humanity, right? So Christological errors, Christological heresies, they deny Christ's humanity, or they deny his divinity, okay? They also confuse his two natures, okay? Or they tried to divide his two natures. Right? So Christological heresies either deny his humanity, deny his divinity, confuse his two natures, or divide his two natures. Right? So he's either conglomerated all into one or is he schizophrenic. All right? Okay? Uh, ecclesiological tend to go against all sorts of things that go within the church, like the authority of scriptures, which we'll look at next with, or soon tonight with Donatism. Okay? All right? Uh, so in all of these, yes, sir? Anathema is when they make a conclusion on a heresy, right? So if it's wrong thinking, boom. It's, it's basically what ecumenical councils have done, right? When we look at uh, Nicaea and Constantinople and then also the Chalcedon and Chalcedonian definitions. They have set up a barrier that says this is what this is. Everything else is anathema or against this and is to be weeded out and thrown into the garbage heap. That's a good way of putting it, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? So, if it's Christological and if it's ecclesiological, heresies in some way, shape, or form are against the totus Christus. They're against the entire body of Christ because Christology deals with the head, who is, and ecclesiological deals with the body, who is the, so the head and the body put together equals the Totus Christus, okay? Does that make sense? All right? Okay. All right. You ready, sir? we look at like modalism and things like that, that's going to be under a Christological, yeah, yeah, anything that, because it's still, it divides out, right, that's a, that's a division as opposed, right, that's a schizophrenic, modalism is a schizophrenic God in some ways, okay, all right, all right, let's look at some Christological heresies, all right, uh, before we do so, two schools of thought within heresies, actually within Christian thinking altogether, in ancient church, in the, in the early church. Two schools of thought. One is called the Alexandrine school. Or Alexandrian school. It's based out of Alexandria, Egypt. Okay? 
Uh, it is Ptolemaic Greek, meaning it was part of the Alexander the Great's empire, in fact, it's named after Alexander the Great. After his death, it was divided amongst his four generals. Ptolemy got Egypt. Cleopatra was a Ptolemaic pharaoh. She was more Greek than she was ancient Egyptian. Okay? Uh, and so their thought processes are Greek. And the main thing that the Alexandrian school of Christian thought deals with is, how can God or a supreme being become a man, right? How can a God or a supreme being become a man? Why is that? Because they're very interested in Platonic thought, in Platonism, in Plato and Aristotle. And that's one of the things they ask. They always have a supreme being, but why would a supreme being lower himself or herself to become human? That's, that is an anathema to Greek thought, right? So the Alexandrian school emphasizes Christ's divinity. That's what they emphasize. Okay. Notable representatives of this school are Origen, Clement, and Cyril. All of them are of Alexandria. So you have Origen of Alexandria, Clement of Alexandria, and Cyril. Okay. The next one is Antiochene. Where do you think the Antiochene school is from? Antioch. Antioch is Syria. Right. Antioch of Syria is, they have a more ancient Near Eastern, a more Hebraic thought. Their thought is, how can a man be God? There's only one God. Okay? Right? So what do they do? If, if Alexandrian focuses on his divinity... What does the Antiochene school do? Focuses on his humanity. Right? Representatives of this school of thought are uh, Diodorus, John Chrysostom, and uh, just, just about everybody else. Right? Okay? So, two schools of thought, Alexandrian, Antiochene, and these are all coming out of the church. Okay? This, is, this is Christian schools of thought. Right? So it's basically like Harvard versus Yale. Right? That's a good way to put that. Okay? I just made that up, so I'm going to write that down. All right? okay? So as we go through these heresies, let's try to see which school of thought you think those heresies came from. Right? But the first heresy I'm going to do is not actually a heresy. It's called Gnosticism. Right, it became a heresy in Christian Gnosticism, but Gnosticism is a philosophy, it's a worldview, it's a religion where salvation is the most important thing ever. But the question is, salvation from what? Right? So, Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, meaning knowledge. Right? So... Let's look at some of its underlying beliefs. Right, first and foremost, it's very prominent in the first and second century AD. Uh, you can see some of Paul's writings uh, against Gnosticism. First John, the entire book of First John, is very anti-Gnostic. 
Uh, there's no single body of teaching in Gnosticism. In fact, there's no single leader. There's approximately 100 sects of Gnosticism, right? If Gnosticism was a virus, it would be like the cold virus. There's not just one cold virus, there's over 100 of them, right? So Gnosticism is like the cold virus of ancient Near East thought, okay? All right, so no leader. Greater than 100 schools of thought. Okay, right. It incorporates Plato, so Platonic, Neoplatonic philosophies. And it also incorporates the idea and the name of Christ, not Jesus, but just specifically Christ, especially in Christian Gnosticism, and then other Judeo-Christian traditions, like don't kill people, don't murder them. Okay. Uh, as we said, it comes from the Greek word gnosis, which just means knowledge. Uh, so here's, here's what we got. Reality is spiritual. So if reality is spiritual, what do you think the material world is? Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? It's a bad thing. Okay? In fact, it's such a bad thing in Gnostic thought that the idea was that when this material world was made, it was made by a lesser, there's a supreme being, and the supreme being makes 365 lesser beings, right? One for every day of the week, right? And then one of these lesser beings named Wisdom has an abortion, and the material world is that abortion, Right? So now what do you think of the material world? Gnostics? It's really bad. Right? Okay? So the idea is humans are a result of that abortion and they need saved. Okay? Humans need saved. Why? Because in the midst of that abortion, little bits of the supreme being or little bits of the spiritual reality were embedded in humans. Now, not all humans, so some of you are totally degenerate, and I'm sorry, you're not going anywhere, all right? You're just going to come here and live out your lives and then die, all right? But for the rest of us, right, for the rest of us, we have these little bits of divine spark that live in us, right? So what needs rescued, what needs saved is those divine sparks out of bad, evil material. So how do you do that? Well, you go find a teacher, and that teacher has secret knowledge. It ha that teacher has the gnosis. Alrighty? Now, the ultimate teacher of that finding of the gnosis is, guess who? Christ. Christ is the supreme teacher of Gnosticism in Christian Gnosticism. Raise your hand if you see a problem with that. Wow, only like four of you raised your hands. <laughs> right. Jamie in the back is there. Right. I, didn't, I didn't raise my hand either, so I can't really talk. Right. Anyway, okay. So, right? Okay. So, 
so if, if Jesus is just, he's not, he's not God, he's not God in the flesh, why, he definitely can't be God in the flesh, why? Because flesh in the material world is evil, right? Okay, so he just comes, he's, he's not born of the Virgin Mary, there's no incarnation, right? There's no doctrine of creation, right? He just kind of appeared as a full-grown man, and then he disappeared. Okay? Leaving us this secret knowledge that you then have to go find a teacher to or for and say, hey, what's the secret handshake to get this bit of divine? I feel like I have a bit of divine spark right about here. You know, just ate a big meal, but whatever. Right? It's, a, it's that divine spark. Right? So, what do you do? You go find a Christian Gnostic who can tell you what the secret Bible verses are that God uh, can use to save you. And he saves not you, the total person. He saves that little bit of divine spark that's left in you. Okay. The church said, <laughs> nope. In fact, John the Apostle wrote an entire little epistle just on this, and that's 1 John. Okay? All right? That's Gnosticism and Christian Gnosticism in a nutshell. Any questions? Yes? That's a very good question, and you and you're leading right towards your own answer. Is that they just, they kind of came into the church? You know how we have small groups. Yeah, well, you would you would get into a certain small group, and I don't know. I would say, Hey, Sean. Yeah, it's great to study the Bible, but let me tell you the real secrets that Jesus was saying. And so it would be, you know, it wasn't like a they didn't have like a the first Christian Gnostic church of Wichita. Right? It was, you would just all go to church together and they would be, right? And then on the other days, they would go do their own thing. They would what? They were subversive. Yeah, yeah. There were also some, remember we said that there's over a hundred schools of thought in Gnosticism. Same, same in Christian Gnosticism, but just not one Gnostic teacher. There were some who ab abstained. They would, they would seem almost like hermits to us, right? Uh, they would abstain from being with the body, uh, and so you would have to go out and find them, right? But, uh, and they would teach you, you know, you got you to gotta abstain from meat so you can only eat vegetables, uh, water only, uh, stay away from marriage, stay away from sex, stay away from all sorts of things. It's, you got to control your, you got to control this material yuckiness, because that material grossness is what's hindering you from releasing your divine spark. See me after class. 
<laughs> would you care to would you care to illuminate us with that divine spark, sir? <laughs> he was a locust eater. Yes, sir. I knew somebody was going to ask that. Uh, I could see where the New Age philosophy and ideology would come in. Um, I can't really off the top of my head think of one within the past 100 years, 50 years. I can I can think of ideas within the church that are Gnostic, but not like one single teacher. I mean, there's always Joel Osteen. I, guess. <laughs> I said there's always Joel Osteen. We can just blame everything on Joel. Uh, like uh, Ertman or. Uh, what is that? Who is that guy that Oprah really, um, he's, he's from India. I know who you're talking about now. Yeah, Deepak Chopra and others. Uh, what's the name of the book again? Oh, that one too. Yeah, that was, yeah. Yeah, that's a good. That's good. Yeah, who's the kind of who's the Christian TED Talk guy? Yeah. Yeah. I think I think along those lines also is you know we all have our favorite theologians and we all like to like push our favorite theologians and we're like Calvin's right and Jacob Arminius is a jerk and he's absolutely wrong which he is so <laughs> correct but you see a lot of that on on Facebook as well right and so we we tout a teacher as opposed to God in the flesh right um, I mean. Calvin is 500 years closer to me than Christ was when he was in the flesh. But at the same time, go to the go to God in the flesh as opposed to Calvin or Arminius or anybody else. Yes, sir. Scripture. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I'll be honest, I've, I've never read that book. So, I, I bet it's a, 
Oh, very much so. Since this can has been opened, <clears throat> while preparing Gnosticism, I fought really hard to not include this song lyric, and everybody knows it, right? This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, right? Yeah, my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't stay at home in this world anymore, whatever it is, I can't remember what it is anymore, right? To be honest, that is escapism. That is a form of, of Gnosticism. Now, I understand where the writer of this hymn is coming from, but it segregates the goodness of the material world from God's creation as opposed to we're just trying to get out of it. And our job isn't just to get out of it. Our job is to take the gospel to creation to the world, to the ends of the world, all four corners of it, right? For the purpose of redeeming, renewing, and restoring all things to Christ. And I can't do that if I'm going to sit and take Christian fire insurance and just sit on my hands. Does that make sense? Now, now, don't don't jump in. Don't jump into Marcion yet. All right. Okay. That, that's don't, don't take my fire, my thunder out of that one. All right. But in that same line, though, a form of Christian Gnosticism is docetism. It comes from the Greek word dokeo. That's a omega, so I'll just do it this way. Dokeo, and it means to seem or to appear. Like something appears to be orange or something seems to be orange, right? In this case, they said Christ seemed to be human, but he wasn't. He was a phantom. And he didn't really die. He made it seem like he did. And then he went away, and now we don't see him anymore. Yes, sir? Yes, there, there are several that will do that, or they'll, they'll conflagate or they'll divide the human Christ and the... Mm -mm, mm -mm. No, no. So you guys know more about heresies than you think you do, right? You just don't know the fancy names for them. 
Yep, the tune there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and so uh, Islam. Islam does too. Yeah. Yeah. All righty. Yes, ma'am. S-I-N-E-O-N-C-S-C-I-O-N. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Trying to escape the world. Yeah, that's a good, yeah. Yeah, because those, those, uh, those aesthetic hermit, hermits would live outside of the city and they would live on a certain diet and all that stuff, right? And they would try to escape. Yeah, yeah. And some of them got to the point where they were like, I'm better than you. I'm better than the bishop of the city of Alexandria because, look, I've given up all of my stuff and I'm holier than he is. Right? So basically, anything, anything can be Gnostic if it denies the goodness of the created world, it denies the incarnation, but it also has to deny the resurrection as well. Why? Why is denying the resurrection? Yeah, he was a, a human material Christ dying for human material, right? He was saying, no, material's not bad. Material's actually good. It's very good because I created it. Right, so I'm going to redeem it. Right, so, uh, but you'll see that with basically every every heresy, they're going to deny some sort of major doctrine. It's either creation, incarnation, or resurrection, and usually it's all three at once. Huh? All right, I got 45 minutes to go through a whole lot of other stuff, but man, you guys really, really love Gnosticism. That's fantastic. All right. Okay. All right. Okay. So that's Gnosticism. Let's look at one uh, or a couple of them that deny Christ's divinity. Okay? And I better make sure that I've got my notes in the right order. I do. All right. This one is called Ebionitism. Ebionetism comes from the Hebrew word ebionum, which means the poor. Now, this is weird. How on earth are they going to deny the divinity of Christ? Well, uh, so first off, there's very little information that exists on the Ebionites. They were in some ways a Judaizing group. And when Paul writes of the Judaizers, they may have been this group. Because they appeared just before the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 and the destruction of the temple. So anywhere between AD 60 and, or AD 55 and AD 70. Okay? In a lot of ways, they are legalists. They are legalists. 
Uh, they believed in one God. So they really held on to that monotheism. They held on to it tight-fistedly, right? Which means that they deny Christ's divinity. That's where they come in, right? They deny Christ's divinity. Uh, they say that he was the natural-born son of Joseph and Mary. However, they believe that he was the Messiah because he is the only one who could faithfully and truthfully obey the Jewish law. So he's Messiah. But not God. And he's Messiah because he is the only one who could faithfully and truthfully, without sin, obey God's law. Okay? Uh, they held Jerusalem in great veneration. Uh, early Ebionite literature or Ebionism literature is uh, no more. None of it has survived. Uh, they kind of, uh, they first used the Gospel of Matthew as their only piece of literature, and then they developed their own Gospel of the Ebionites, uh, and they just kind of faded into existence. Okay? Well, that's, anybody ever heard of the Ebionites? Who has not gone to seminary? No? Okay. Okay. So you learned something. That was kind of neat, right? Kind of weird. Okay. The next one uh, is adoptionism. Yep. Anybody heard of adoptionism? Right? Okay. Adoptionism is also sometimes called monarchianism. Right? Right. Here's why. Let me, let me get both of them. Okay? Adoptionism. Okay. Monarch, obviously, a king or a ruler is the head of this one. Right? Monarchianism. Okay? This is also a very extreme monotheistic view. It regarded Christ as the Redeemer, but he's not divine. Right? Hence the attack on the fact that he's a denial of Christ's divinity. We left that part out, right? He's Redeemer, but he clings to the numerical unity of the divinity, right? The Father is completely divine. Okay. And it lasts for quite some time. But basically, how it becomes adoptionism is that God the Father adopts Jesus and makes him his son and therefore makes him the Christ. That way you can get around the, you know, is Jesus actually God in the flesh question. Adoptionism, monarchianism, meaning God the Father is the ruler. He adopts the Son so that the Son then can become the next ruler and redeemer. Kind of makes sense. All right. If I were just looking at these for the first time, and perhaps some of you are, 
what do you honestly think they're trying to answer in these questions, in these, in these thoughts, in these types of cases? How can Jesus be God and man at the same time? Right? Okay. Nothing new under the sun. Right? So, yeah. Okay. Adoptionism uh, lasts well into the uh, uh, fourth centuries. Uh, it is... Uh, demolished by the Nicene Creed, which is why, or the Constantinopolitan Creed, that's a fun word, Constantinopolitan Creed, right? Uh, where it says that he is God of God, light of light, God of God, true God of true God, right? No, they're saying, no, Jesus, Jesus isn't just adopted by the Father, Jesus is part of the Trinity, so he is divine, and he is all the triune God, three and one, one and three. Right? Yes, sir? They would, uh, for the most part, deny the Holy Spirit's existence. I just had a really mean joke. I was going to say, they're kind of like Presbyterians. <laughs> Badoom ching. Oh, that's awesome. Right? Ha, 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 ha. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, we actually see, uh, we still see adoptionism and uh, monarchianism today in the uh, Unitarian Church and also in uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay? Your, Kathy, your face is like, how on earth is that in the Unitarian Church? <laughs> Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he does believe. Well, that's, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, he's got it 95% of it, you know, right there. Right? Exactly. So I don't mean to make fun of him, but you're right. It's, uh, right? Jehovah's Witnesses, Jehovah's Witnesses will also be seen in Arianism as well. Right? But the fact that they hold on to a staunch, extreme monotheism, right? As in, like, they just can't. They can't see God as, you know, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They can't understand that there's a, there's a trinity to that unity, right? I'm here speaking like I can totally understand the trinity, uh, but I can't. So, right? Uh, I have all of eternity to figure that out, though. Okay. All right. Any questions then on, uh, on adoptionism? That's a, not, not quite, it was more like a, I'm a spiritual being, and I need to be in better contact with the material world, which is good. Uh, in, in adoptionism, uh, creation is good, right? But there needs to be a, a go-between, somebody who is good enough, and Jesus was good enough, so therefore God adopted him as the next ruler.
That's the first part. Okay, so Jesus earns his adoption status. Okay. But no other human had that capability, just Jesus Christ. And Christ, in this case, is more of a last name. Okay. Right. But our goal, then, as followers of God the Father and his adopted son, Christ Jesus Christ, is to emulate Jesus in being good. So it's very legalistic. It's very earned-based salvation. And there's no hope in it. Yeah. How come there's no hope in it? Because you can't be good enough. Right? Yeah. Right? Okay. Questions on adoptionism. Man, you guys are really, like, getting into this stuff. That's awesome. I'm really plowing through it and understanding it. Yeah, they take enough truth and point it off a true north just a half a degree to make it look good. Yep, yep. So they twist, you know, they do exactly what Satan did, the serpent did in the garden. Did, did God really say? Just enough to get you to go, hmm, right? Okay. All righty, let's look at some more. Any other questions so far? Yes, Mr. Arnold. Uh, that, that's a good question. There are some that say that adoptionism, when they first started out, John's gospel hadn't been written yet. Right? But then as time goes on, because I said it goes out to the fourth, uh, late 4th century, early 5th century, right? they would say, well, begotten means that, of course, because Christ was good enough, he had to be born. He was born of Joseph and Mary. And, it was, and, and because he was begotten, right? begotten in this case meaning made through natural means. So he's begotten, and it's not really until he gets adopted by God the Father that he then becomes who he, who he is. That's a good one. Okay. Let's keep going, all right, because we got a whole lot more. All right, okay. So we did adoptionism. We did the denial of Christ's divinity, right? Let's, we did some of this denial of Christ's humanity. That's Gnosticism and, uh, and Docetism. All right. Oh, we didn't look at Arianism. Oh, man. Oh, all right, everybody, buckle up. Okay? All right. Okay. Now, when, uh, when Ben Davis was here, he talked a lot about Arianism. All right, so we don't, we don't need to spend a whole lot of time in it, but Arianism 
is probably one of the biggest heresies that the church has ever seen, next to Donatism and Pelagianism, right? Okay? Arianism holds that Jesus as the Son of God was created by God, right? So... Arianism is named after Arius, who was a deacon priest out of Alexandria. His uh, instructor was, his, his bishop was Alexander of Alexandria. That's a fantastic name. I'm Kyle of Kyle Land. Right? So, uh, right? so in Arianism, uh, we get... We get Jesus was created by God. He's a, he's a presbyter. Uh, Arius is a presbyter. Right? It is, it's denounced as heresy at the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. Right? So, Jesus he was created by God. Right? Arius knew scripture. Arius was afraid that his... Uh, Bishop Alexander was spouting uh, Sibelianism, which is actually another form of monarchy, uh, monarchianism, right? Uh, Sibelianism uh, is basically, uh, Sibelius is the, the, uh, the priest uh, in that one, but, or the bishop in that one. Uh, Sibelianism um, is trying to make uh, God the Father goes away, it's God the Son, and then later on in life is God the Holy Spirit. So it's a form of modalism as well. Right? But what they're trying to do is say, oh, no, 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 no. It's, it's three and one and one and three. That language just hadn't been fleshed out yet. Right? So Arius, here's his bishop, trying to explain the Trinity, and he jumps on and goes, wait a second, that's wrong. Right? Because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning, and right? However, let's look at what, he, what Paul then says in Colossians, where he says he's the firstborn of all creation. Arius took that literally, meaning that when God said, let there be light, Jesus was made just prior before that. So Arius's big thought process is there was a time when he was not a time when he, meaning Jesus, was not okay. So he's making Jesus a lesser create a lesser God. He's still he's like more like a demigod. He's greater than humans. He's perfect, right? He came to Earth to save you but he's not on the same level as the Father. That's Arianism. Right? Arianism drew a pretty big crowd. Right? Because once again, they're trying to understand how on earth is Jesus the God-man? Or as Anselm would write almost a thousand years later, Cur Deus Homo, the God-man. Right? So it's 
he, he, he's a man who knows his scripture. The problem is, is that when he went to sit under, sit under correction, he wouldn't listen to it. So what does he do? He tells everybody else that they're heretics, and he starts his own church. They go, they battle for a, for a long time. Uh, he is eventually uh, deemed a heretic at the Council of Nicaea in AD 325, which is where we also get the Nicene Creed, which is why we quote it every week. Also, you should have a handout with it. Do you? Okay. And also the Chalcedonian Declaration. Some people call it the Chalcedonian Definition. Same difference. Okay? It should be on the front or back of yours. Okay? All right. So that's Arianism. Uh, Arianism is uh, one of his biggest, one of biggest, Arius' biggest uh, uh, arch rivals, I guess you could say his arch rival, was Athanasius of North Africa. Athanasius was a man shorter than I am, and he was from North Africa, so his skin was darker, and his political opponents called him the Black Dwarf. All right? And it was awesome. And he used that moniker to his advantage. And he was a heck of, he would fight people, he would punch them, he and St. Nicholas. St. Uh, Nicholas, I'm here to deliver presents and punch heretics, and I'm all the presents. That's <laughs> That, that is my favorite Christmas meme. I will use it constantly. All right? Okay? Uh, so Arius gets defeated at the... Arius gets defeated at Nicaea. Do you think he goes away? No, because Justin the Apostate becomes emperor, and he, he doesn't care about Christianity. He wants to restore pa uh, pagan Rome to its glory. But do you know what? Arius and Arianism is a good political ally. So what does he do? He banishes and exiles all of the orthodox, small, uh, lowercase o, priests out of, and bishops out of their churches and puts in Arian uh, uh, bishops, right? However, you know, Justin finally dies, and or Julius, excuse me. I said Justin, it's Julius the Apostate. Julius dies, and Arians run for their lives. Basically, but they, they battle back and forth for the next 300 to 400 years uh, until they are, their church is basically just dissolved. Uh, yes, sir? Oh, both. Yeah. See, here's the great thing about the early church is they weren't afraid to mince words, and then they weren't afraid to mince words. Right? So, like, at the Council of Nicaea, there were fistfights. At the Council of Constantinople, there were fistfights. At Chalcedon, there are fistfights. Has anybody ever seen the YouTube videos of the Japanese parliament? They will go at it, literally, which is probably what our Congress needs sometimes, right? But they will literally, they, they feel so passionate about it that they will knock each other out. That's why St. Nicholas gets that reputation. That's why Athanasius gets that reputation also, right? But they respected him, and they respected each other. So they, they went at each other with polemics, with theological treatises back and forth. But, you know, you, you're going to deny the divinity of my Lord and Savior. Well, by golly, you're, gonna about, you're about to meet him. <laughs> and that's, you know, so yeah, right? No, go. We only have 22 minutes. 
So, so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the beginning, the, the end of the 17th, beginning of the 18th century. That's, you begin to see a shift. Right? There's still a whole lot of stalwart theologians in, in the church willing to hold on. Um, and, then, and then it happens again towards the turn of the 19th in this 20th century. Critical theory, so you get Protestant scholasticism in the 17th century, you get critical theory in the late, or the, uh, the early to mid 19th century out of Germany. Both of which are out of Germany. Man, those German theologians. There's some good ones. Don't, don't, don't burn me at the stake afterwards like all heretics. Well, that's the funny thing. I was just saying that. They, don't, they didn't really burn each other at the stakes. They fought each other. They wrote nasty treatises against each other. They would kill each other. Don't get me wrong. I mean, the Donatists love to kill people in the name of keeping Scripture pure they, and bishops pure. They love to kill people, right? They got in fisticuffs all the time, but you don't read a whole lot of burning of people at the stakes yet. That's, not, that's a medieval thing for the most part. Now, martyrs were burned at the stake all the time. I mean, they were nailed to crosses, covered in pitch, and lit on fire, right? Or they were just burned at the stake, right? But, uh, but the idea of burning heretics became uh, a theological thing in that you burn a heretic because by so doing you save their souls. You then purify their souls so that they don't have to go through the fires of hell, right? So that's why we burn heretics. It's to save them. It is, right? Is it not? Right? I mean, by burning, by burning your, your incorrect brother or sister, you actually are loving and you save them. Right? Good. I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> it's a good thing that wasn't from behind the pulpit. That's right. That's right. Yep. And and tradition. And yeah. tradition. Yeah. 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 But even in the midst of that, the the truth of God's word was always at stake. Right, so their passion was, though maybe wrongly expressed, was for the purity and the clarity of the gospel. Right, they were looking at who who is this Jesus? Where we're three centuries in, and we still haven't got him figured out, but we've got the word of the apostles. We've got the tradition of the church up till now, we have a majority that is in greater uh, understanding with each other, and there are some things to tweak out back and forth between Constantinople and, and Rome, right? But at the same time, it's 
the gospel is at stake. And, uh, and this is jumping into the church's reaction to Marsonianism, is apostolic confession is a huge thing in Marsonianism, and so is the canon and the development of the canon. Because to be honest, Marcion, or his real name is Marcion in the Greek, Marcion develops the first canon. The first canon is heresy. It's a heretical canon. But we'll get into that in a second, all right? So, but you'll see how all of that develops and then leads more towards the creeds, and that's why they put things like Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. It's Holy, comma, Catholic, lowercase c, comma, Apostolic Church. All right? Apostolic not necessarily mean that uh, the next person, that, like your teachers were taught by the, this person who was taught by this person, so on and so forth, and then ended up being taught, taught, taught by one of the apostles. But that the teachings of the apostles is passed down. That is apostolic succession. Uh, so, uh, where was I going with that? But yeah, so that so that makes that a, a little bit more. You know, there's there's an understanding of how all of that then puts in together. Right? Let's keep going. Okay, uh, we've got we got some more here, dude. Uh, let's look at the confusion of the two natures of Christ. Right? This one's a confused nature. This one is called monophysitism. M-O-N-O-P-H-Y-S-I-T-I-S-M. Monophysitism, and it literally means one nature. Monophysis. Monophysis in the Greek. Right? It's, it's the belief that Jesus' nature remains altogether and divine and not human, even though he was taken up on an earthly and human body within its cycle of birth, life, and death, right? So his, his, his still more, he's still more divine as human, right? But there's, a, there's something within the body that it becomes divine. How, how else can I explain this? So he's got, he's got a divine nature, and a human nature, right? But basically the human is absorbed into the divine so that the human aspect isn't really there at all. Does that make sense? Actually, it doesn't, but what I mean is, does that, does that make sense when I mean it's absorbed? Like it is, the human nature is drawn into the divine so that all you see, all the apostles saw, all that people in first century Palestine saw was his divineness. Yes, sir?
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that. You're still in seminary, aren't you? Kind of. Do you have a paper left? Because you need to write one like that. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. Yes, and I, I see what you're saying. There's something, there's a draw to the, to the superhero genre, right? Because a superhero is someone above and beyond ourselves. They have an ability to do something. They have an ability to save. Even an anti-hero is something greater than who we are. Does that make sense? Uh, so, uh, so, yeah, I would, I would, I'm trying to, trying to put all of your, Oh, that's true. That's a good point. They're looking for a Messiah. Yeah. Yes, Ben. Maybe maybe that has maybe there's something innate in us that likes that because we need to be saved, and so we think that we can save others. I don't know. I could be way over-spiritualizing it. So. In, my, in my head. That would be a good uh, institute for Eric to deliver. <laughs> if, if I could drag him up here. <laughs> so... Uh, Let's see. Uh, other forms of, of uh, monophysitism is Eutychianism. It's named after a guy named Eutychus. Don't worry about writing it down. Begins with an EU. That's all you need to know, right? Uh, condemned in 448. Uh, monophysitism condemned in Chalcedon, with the Chalcedonian definition. Okay. Uh, let's keep. Oh, you can still find you can still find monophysitism alive and well today, but they're in churches that you would have never have ever heard of, right? Uh, and the main monophys, monophysitic church is called the Oriental Orthodox Church. Okay, they've been around for a long time, uh, and that's. Uh, They used to also include the Oriental Orthodox Church. Branch broke off and is its own denomination or branch of Christianity. But it also used to include things like the Armenian Apostolic Church, which has been around since the 2nd century A.D., the Coptic Orthodox Church out of Egypt, which has been around since the 3rd century A.D., the Ethiopian Orthodox uh, Church, which has been around since Philip and the Ethiopian, right? So you're looking at like AD 50. Uh, the Syriac Orthodox Patriarch of Antioch uh, and the Syrian Orthodox Church. But since then, since the, within the past 100 years, uh, most of those churches have sat down with uh, representatives of the Roman Catholic Church, Protestant denominations, and the Eastern Orthodox Church and have worked out the fact that, oh, hey, 
Christ is human and divine at the same time. So they finally have become Nicene and Chalcedonian churches, right? So they are Trinitarian churches, right? It's crazy, huh? Still are, right? Nothing new under the sun. All right, I got nine minutes. Let's find a good one, all right? <clears throat> now that they're all good. I'm just going to tell you, here's a division of his two natures. So here's the confusion. Here's a division So here's one where Christ is schizophrenic, and that's Nestorianism. Okay. Right. And one of these days we'll flesh out Nestorianism because it's kind of neat. Right. Uh, needless to say, uh, it's just basically that uh, the... The word and the incarnation, the word being capital W, uh, are, are still split, even though at the same time they appear. So it's one of these, like, ripping apart type things. Nestorius is uh, a weird dude himself, but uh, we won't, uh, we'll, we'll save it for, the, for next time, and we'll get into one that's even weirder, all right? Okay. So those are, those are some of the, not all of, but some of the Christological heresies. Let's look at an ecclesi uh, ecclesiological heresy. This one is called Marcionism. Okay, named after Marcion. In the Latin, in the Greek, it's Marcion, right? Here's some background on, on Marcion. Uh, he was born in AD 85 in Pontus, Asia Minor. Pontus, Asia Minor is on the north border of Turkey. So it's the southern shore of the Black Sea. Right? So Black, Black Sea, Pontus is actually a, uh, basically like a province of Turkey. Okay? Or of Asia Minor at the time. Okay? So grew up there. Uh, his father was bishop. His name was Philologos of Sinope. Right? Philologos literally means uh, lover of words. Philo. Logos. Also spelled Logos. Right? Tradition has it that this Philologos is the same Philologos that Paul writes about in Romans 16, 15. Right? So if you're ever like, oh, that's, I've heard that name before. Boom. That's what they're saying. So Philologos is commissioned by Paul. Right? Go. Right? So he goes to Pontus in Asia Minor, starts a church, and his son becomes a heretic. Right? Isn't that fun how that works? Right? That's what every father wants. Right? So... Uh, also, um, tradition has it that Philologos was one of the 70 sent out in Luke 10. Right? How much of that is true, we may never know until we run into Philologos one of these days in, uh, in the new heavens and new earth. I'll be like, hey, bud, was that true? And he'll probably be like, no. But basically what they're trying to do is since his dad, since Marcion's father was a 
orthodox, bishop orthodox, small case O, uh, they're trying to protect him by saying, oh no, this is the Philologos that Paul sent out that was one of the 70 disciples in Luke chapter 10 that Christ sent out. So distance yourself between father and son. Son is an absolute heretic. We love this guy. Does that make sense? That way, that way his bishop prick, his ministry is saved, right? He still has a good character to his name. Does that make sense? Right? Okay. Right. Uh, Marcionism uh, arose sometime in the uh, sometime in the late eighty one thirties. Marcion travels to Rome. He begins to teach. He runs into a uh, Christian Gnostic teacher named Cerdo, C-E-R-D-O, uh, and he grabs a hold of Cerdo's teachings, right? Uh, and he begins to preach and teach, and by AD 144, the church in Rome excommunicates him. So what does he do? He repents. No. What he does is he starts his own church, right? And, he, and it's a huge following. For the first uh, 100 years of its existence, Marcionism is a major threat to Orthodox Christianity. Right? Here's what they believe. His teachings, uh, he had a profound dislike towards Judaism and the material world. Material world is bad. That's part of Gnosticism. Judaism is because, well, they crucified Jesus. Right? So we've got an anti-Semite who's a Gnostic. Right? So what does he do? Is that he says that, it is his understanding of Christianity that it's anti-Jewish, it's anti-material. Uh, he says that the world is evil. And he calculates or he, he, he comments that the God that created the world, so creator God, is evil. This is the God of the Old Testament, whom he just calls Jehovah. But the Redeemer God is good, and that's the God of the New Testament. And the, so there are two gods, the evil, judgmental God of the Old Testament, and the Redeemer God of the New Testament. So this guy is judgmental. This guy is super loving. He didn't. They're two gods. Yeah. Yeah. Right? They exist simultaneously. Uh, yeah, basically, this one, the Redeemer God just kind of says, no, it, it's my turn to shine. You've had your run, good luck. Right, so it's my turn to shine. And I do that by sending Jesus. 
who becomes the Christ. Who becomes the Christ. Right? Okay? Uh, there's a little bit of docetism mixed up in Marcionism, in that Jesus appears to be all that and more. Uh, the physical Jesus dies. The Christ is the one who ascends to heaven, and the physical Jesus is just buried. His body's buried, and he never resurrects. Nothing new under the sun, bud. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? They, they kind of battle it out, except if there's no battle, it's just this one takes over, right? But here's something else he does. So if, if the God of the Old Testament is evil, and I don't like the Jews, what am I supposed to do with the Old Testament? Ignore it, throw it away, what? Unhitch it. I am so glad you went there, because that's where I was going, Right? So the God of the New Testament is, what do I do with the New Testament? Well, I remove everything that's Jewish in the New Testament. So the only book that Marcion loved was the Gospel of Luke and the epistles of Paul. Because he said that Paul, more than anybody, understood what Jesus was saying. Which is ironic because both of them are Jewish. You know? And so was, you know, and then Luke, the Gospel of Luke, he takes out everything that is a quotation from the Old Testament or anything that appears Jewish. So he's basically like Thomas Jefferson in his Bible. Anything miraculous, I'm just going to take out. Right? But what Marcion does in all of this is his church says, these are the scriptures that we're going to stick with. We're going to stick with the Gospel of Luke, thoroughly watered down, and the epistles, uh, the book of Acts, and the Epistles of Paul. Right? But the Orthodox Church doesn't have that. They don't have a canon. So what do they have to do? They develop one. Right? Now, they just don't sit down in a meeting and go, Hey, boys. Everybody bring their section? Right? Yay or nay? No. For, uh, for the next two and a half centuries, they begin to develop a massive consensus, right? Because they already know against Marcion, they already have, they already understand the four Gospels. So they say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are God's word, and the book of Acts, all of Paul's epistles. And then throughout time, they get the rest of the other epistles, the, the lesser epistles, as they are finally circulated throughout all of the churches and the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation was another one of those ones where they sat down and like, uh, do we? I'll, fist, I'll fight you if you don't. You know, one of those types of things. Uh, but the book of Revelation and the, and the canon as we know it was actually finally settled before the end of the fourth century. Right? So what does Marcion do? Marcion's actually good for the church in that it made us sit down and go, oh, hey, Let's, uh, let's actually think about what God's word is, right? But on top, but, but against Marcion, what they did is they said, the Old Testament, you, Christ is all through the Old Testament. You can't get rid of him, right? 
uh, Marcion is uh, condemned at Nicaea, Constantinople, and Chalced uh, Chalcedon. So over a 125-year period, he's everything's condemned. He uh, he lives he lives on today in. Uh, how many have heard the phrase, I'm just a New Testament believer? Yeah. Be like, okay, Marcion. And you're like, who's that? And be like, he's a heretic, and he deserved to be burned at the stake. <laughs> just kidding. Yeah, yeah, because we love you. And then you punch him in the face as they're burning to death. That's exactly right. Right? So, right? Uh, I was going to get into Donatism. If you really want, like, bloodshed and fighting and all that, Donatism is the way to go, right? We'll do that another time because it's a huge, huge heresy against the church, against the body of believers. Uh, so, but that's just a, that's literally just a, a quick summary, a quick survey. There's actually a ton more out there. Some of them are just tiny little ones that flare up and go away, uh, but they all have really cool names. So study your heresies. I'm, you know, it, it actually is quite edifying. So, uh, any questions before we go? Yeah, they. Yeah, they still call God evil or bad in the Old Testament, right? There are people out there. Yeah. So how do we, how do we, how would I relate that to Marcion? How would I say, hey, hey man, what you're, what you're looking at is, is they're one and the same? Is that kind of how you're asking? How would I do that? I think if I was talking to Marcion, I think the first thing I would want to do is, and then we got to go, is I'd like to know what the seed of his anti-Judaism, anti-Semitism is. Because I think in some ways that's where it lies. What is it that makes you, you, you want somebody to love you so bad, and yet you hate an entire people group? Where do we begin there? And so now I have never thought of that question before. How do I relate to Marcion? So now I'm going to have to go home and think about it. Uh, so you and I will be in further discussion on some of that. But, uh, but that's a good question. You know, it's, you know, it's the same thing as how do, you, how do you talk to people today? They're like, well, the God of the Old Testament is an arbitrary judge. He just kills people randomly. And how do you express the holiness and the perfection of Yahweh to somebody who has, in some ways, already made up their minds. Right? How do you, how do you get, there's more, there are more walls to break down before you can actually get to, because that's not, this isn't the, 
this isn't the symptom, or this isn't the cause, it's a symptom, right? What got you to this part, Marcion? Was it because your dad was actually thoroughogos out of Romans 16, 15, or Luke 10, if that's the case, you know? Was it because he was gone all the time? I don't, I don't know, you know? Were you an absentee father? I don't know, I don't, I don't know, right? So, good question. I'm sorry I don't have a clear answer to that. Uh, questions before we leave? Going once, going twice, would you close us?